0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Jeanette Cockroft, and I am the host of this channel. Today, I will be interviewing Beverly Chalmers, author of Child Sex Abuse Power, Profit, Perversion. Please welcome Beverly Chalmers to the program. Welcome, Beverly. Thank you very much. Lovely to be with you. Ah, my pleasure. Why don't we start by your telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Okay. Um, I was born in South Africa many years ago. Um, Grew up there and went to university there and then taught at Wits University for about 20 years before uh, leaving the country and moving to Canada. Um, I became involved in international work with the World Health Organization and UNICEF, spent many years, decades working with them, uh, primarily in the former Soviet Union countries, but also in many other parts of the world. My work was primarily involved at that time in childbirth. Um, and maternal and child health, which is what my involvement was with in strengthening maternal child health all over the former Soviet Union countries. And then um, I reached a point where I had actually spent most of my time dealing with women giving birth in very difficult situations, um, like in under apartheid, um, having had previously had female genital mutilation. And then became very interested in another difficult life experience for women, and that was women giving birth in the Nazi era under the under the the Germans, Um, and it was an incredibly difficult experience for Jewish women in particular, but for all women. And I wrote a book about um, birth called Birth, Sex, and Abuse: Women's Voices under Nazi Rule. Um, which you interviewed me for, for the New Books Network as well, so that was wonderful. That book um, became a multiple award-winning book, but in the process of writing it, I became very interested in what was happening to the children as well, because I came across not only the experiences of women who had been sexually abused or raped throughout the, the Holocaust, but also children. So at the end of writing that book, I thought I would explore further the idea of what happened to child sex abuse in the Holocaust. And we interviewed about that book too. That's called Betrayed Child Sex Abuse in the Holocaust. That book also won a number of awards. But in the process of reading about child sex abuse in the Holocaust, um, I was absolutely stunned with just how... Extensive child sex abuse was because I kept coming across all these reports of children who'd been sexually abused, not in the Holocaust, but in life, in our lives. And I couldn't believe just how extensive it was. Um, And at first, I thought of combining the book about children's sexual abuse in the Holocaust with a general book on child sex abuse. But the two issues were completely um, independent in the sense of the extent of child sex abuse globally that I just had to put that together as a separate book and that's what led to me writing this book child sex abuse and I subtitled it power profit perversion because that's really what it is about rather than a sexual offense it's one of power one of profit seeking and one of perversion so that's what led me to to write this particular book which has also now won a number of awards too which is very wonderful so thank you
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, congratulations. It's a very powerful book. Uh, let's start with a definition. What exactly is child sex abuse and what's
1: the scope of the problem? Okay, let me try and give you, there are many different um, definitions depending on which country and which place you're thinking of, but the one that I've used and that I uh, prefer um is the use of a child by a person for sexual arousal or gratification of that person or another person. That's the essence of it. But this includes all kinds of variations of behavior. It includes unwanted touching, um, anal penetration or oral penetration, vaginal intercourse, sexual violence. Um, It also is um, a question of, Consent, and this is probably one of the key defining factors that various definitions differ regarding consent. Um, For me, any kind of non-consent is sexual abuse. So a silent response or an ambiguous response or for a person who's drugged or drunk or unconscious at the time of the abuse, that cannot be regarded as as consent. Simply because the person doesn't fight back or shout or say no, because they're too drunk or too deceived in some ways, does not mean it's consent. And that has to be part of any sexual abuse um, uh, definition. And in terms of child sex abuse, it's commonly regarded that anything under anything other than sixteen, under than sixteen or under, is regarded as a child for, for the purpose of abuse. Some countries and many countries and many uh, United Nations organizations use eighteen as the cutoff point. But even if we stick at sixteen, um, that gets you far somewhat uh, uh, part of the way. Um, Canada's added a a different component, too. They focus also not only on the sexual abuse, but on the amount of force that's used and the degree of injury that is inflicted. So those are all the various factors. Injury, um, force, um, perhaps less invasive or intrusive or penetrative sex is also sexual abuse, and the lack of consent is an issue. It seems
0: to me I read at least 10% of all the children
1: in the world? Is that about right? Yes. Um, It's a horrific figure, but it's basically one in 10 of children across the world. This this varies across uh, parts of the world. um, But one in 10 children across the world report sexual abuse before the age of 18. I can give you some various figures. I think in Europe, it's about 9% of all children. In Africa, it's 34% of children. So it varies across regions of the world. And America is around 10%, much the same as Europe. Asia is around 23%, somewhere in the middle. So you're getting an idea. It's a huge proportion of children who do experience sexual abuse at some time in their lives, at least once before the age of 18. Uh. It's unimaginable. It's one of the most and this—that's the other side of it. It's, it's the most underreported crime, because many children who who eventually do report sex are either not believed, or if they are believed, they're reabused. The legal system, you know, making them repeat their story again and again, um, sometimes in front of the perpetrator in a, in a situation, a court of law. Um, it, it, it leads to re-abusing these children multiple, multiple times. And and then on top of it all, our punishments are so minimal for this, for this crime. The children are, are affected for the rest of their lives, but the punishments for the perpetrators are so minimal, a couple of years, one year, three years, at most five years perhaps, and in very rare cases is it longer than that, um, that the children don't report it. They don't want to go through this again and again. So it is one of the most underreported crimes in the world. Some estimates are that it's one in 10 or one in nine crimes is actually reported. It's as few (sighs) as that. Oh, good gravy. It's it's absolutely horrible. I can tell you a little bit more about it. Please do. Um, It affects all children. And this this is, for me, was absolutely stunning to learn about. Babies, infants. Toddlers, children, adolescents, and youth. There are huge categories and numbers of children who are very little, from babies and infants and toddlers upwards, that are used. It affects people at any level, all individuals, at a societal level, at an individual level, and at a global level. It is massive. It is extensive. We have few means of preventing it. We can't or We don't monitor its prevalence. It's hard to measure just how often it's happening and where it's happening. We don't have good recording systems. We don't know how to stop most of the perpetrators. We can barely assist the survivors, the children who actually get to get some kind of help. We're we're not able to help them very well. We ignore child sex abuse because we hide behind it. We hide behind the taboos of talking about sex. It's just too stunning, too difficult, too hard. And then we are uncomfortable ourselves talking about sex. And when it comes to child sex, it's even more difficult. So we ignore it. We sometimes facilitate it. We justify it in all different ways. And I can tell you a little bit about that. We hide behind religious beliefs, for example, or ideological beliefs, um, we justify it, um, we continue it, sometimes in hidden places, sometimes right in the open. We hardly punish it, and we often blame the children for their abuse. You asked for it, that kind of statement. Why did you dress like that? You invited that, that's
0: it. That's the worst um, of it, isn't yeah,
1: it? Yeah, And instead of blaming the perpetrators, and this was one of the key things that emerged from my book, Um Instead of putting the blame on children, let's turn it around. Let's put the blame on the people who are actually responsible for doing this. Let's target how to prevent perpetrators rather than how to only teach little girls to dress nicely and be modest and not take lifts from strangers. Why aren't we teaching the strangers not to invite children into their cars? Um, It's not just a physical attack or a sexual attack, it's betrayal, often by family members or friends or friends of family or teachers, it's a humiliating experience, it's degrading, it challenges one's child's self-perception of their worth, Um, it challenges their intellectual development, They, they fall out of school, they can't cope with what's happening in classes or school, they fall behind if they ever get a chance to go to school. They lose trust in people and in their world. Um, and it's, some of them have to continue living their lives, even with their abusers. For example, the, the, child, the, the, the students who get abused at universities often has, to, and then are encouraged to continue with their degrees. And it may be that the same abusers in the same class with them. It is incredible what we actually do. Um, and we often believe the perpetrators rather than the children. When children tell us stories of what's happened to them, we don't believe them. And that happened particularly with the school systems, and and especially if, say the you know we know a lot about the, the child sex abuse that's occurred in schools, and particularly the religious schools, the Catholic schools in particular. Um, when they'd come home and tell their their mums or their their family or even their teachers that. Brother so-and-so did this to me or the priest did that to me. They'll say, what are you saying? These are men of God. They're holy. They don't do that kind of thing. You're imagining it. And you're a cruel, wicked child to do this, um, pun- punishing you. Go and wash the dishes. Uh, you know, this is, we just don't believe children. We don't give children rights and we don't respect their autonomy or their credibility. We perpetrate it. We facilitate it in many ways, and we did certainly when it came to the, the school abuse, and that was so prevalent.
0: Let's talk a little more about that. Um, why is it that in religious schools and religious institutions, for example, that this is even an issue? Why,
1: why would these people be doing this? There's many possible explanations, but for me, what was stunning reading all this about the, the, the school sex abuse, which is only a small part of child sex abuse, believe it or not, is... Um, but a massive problem th- throughout all the school systems, primarily because they came from the – it was based on the Irish school system, which started a, a century or so ago. But people from there went, and the, 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 the Christian religion, the Catholic religion in particular, spread to all the countries that were colonized um, – Australia, New Zealand, uh, South Africa, Canada um, – by these same teachers – um, and so it became global as a problem. But why did they do it? Um, in that situation, one of the primary um, motivations for them was actually couched in religious ideology, in the frame, in the sense that they would say, "You come from a poor family. Your mother was a prostitute," and that was the words they would use in those days. Not sex worker. Um, And they would say, you have inherited these bad genes. We have to beat it out of you. We have to punish you. And that was one component of it. The other was these, uh, and these are usually men, although there were some women who also abused in the schools. Um, These are men who, especially in the Catholic religion, are confined to celibacy. Um, One wonders, why and how they became priests in the first place, um, and there was sexual frustration is perhaps one way of putting it. Um, but the belief that they were doing good for the children, that they were trying, they were actually trying to make these children better. They were um, cleansing their souls, in a sense, to to of their inherited sins or their genetic. Um, Predisposition to be bad, and these were children often who were in these schools as boarding schools most of the time, who came from poor families, who um, who were orphans in many cases, um, or just couldn't be cared for by their families who had too many children and couldn't afford to look after them, put them in the schools for safekeeping. Um, and because there was just total belief in the in the priests and the, the brothers, these are holy men; they would never do this. I remember reading one story of um, uh, people would say that if a woman gave birth to a child with an anomaly, a, you know, a, a missing fingers or hand or something was wrong, they would say, "Oh, it's because you spoke ill of the priests. This is your punishment from God." Um, so, you know, how would they believe a child who came home and said? You know, the brother or the father touched me inappropriately, or played with me, even if they were allowed to say such things, aloud because sex was not a was a taboo subject anyway. They were never believed. They just weren't believed. Um, and yet, the priests were able to do this. They were protected. Um, they were they were hidden from so from family condemnation and from legal condemnation, because if that report or complaint ever did get to the police and the police came to investigate the, the church would very quickly move these offending priests into another place they would simply transfer them to another school or another s- country or city um, and and promise the police oh he'll never come back it'll never it'll never be a problem we'll deal with it and the church kept it very quiet and um, they they refused to expose these brothers or priests um, or nuns. Um, they simply moved them from place to place. Um, they made them promise to never do this again. And they would simply be moved into another situation where they continued to abuse in an, uh, another school or another setting. And that happened time and time and time again. So they got away with it. They simply got away with it and... Uh, Nobody was willing to expose it or, or um, bring it into public awareness where it became public until the making of that, that film Spotlight, which really exposed it to the world and then has stimulated a huge, huge amount of investigation into it. I can give you one example of how important it was. There is another film that was made in Poland quite recently in the last five years or so called Tell No One. And this exposed the uh, interviews of uh, children who had been abused, who are now adults, um, who went back to the priests and accused them and said to them, what did you do? Why did you do this? Look what you did to me. And all these interviews were filmed. Um, and that film was put on on the Internet. Um, and within one week, there were 17 million views oh, of wow. that that, that particular film. And the same thing has happened with, with other exposures, exposures. And, of course, Spotlight was an Oscar-winning uh, movie and, and really brought the whole thing crumbling down. So the churches had to look at it more carefully. Um, but it was just a fa- – we facilitated it. We, we turned a blind eye to it. We allowed it to happen. We facilitated it, and certainly the church facilitated it um, and allowed it to continue, so – um,
0: so it did. Indeed. Um, yeah. While while we're talking about institutional abuse, let's talk a little bit about um, Canada and mm-hmm. a, schools for the children of First Nations.
1: We have the residential school system. This was an unbelievably atrocious part of Canadian history, and it came from the same thing. It came from the same Irish school system. Uh, where these same priests and so on came to teach in Canada. Canada is a, was a, was is a British colony, um, and the same values and attitudes towards children came. But on top of that, there was a cultural component. Um, these children were particularly vulnerable. Um they were traditionally taught in their home environments with their traditions, um, which were incredibly well adapted to living in northern rural parts of Canada, which is a very cold climate, but a very beautiful part of the world. Um, and these children were, were brought up in their own societies very happily until our government at the time decided that they ought to be um, integrated into Canadian society and we should Kill the Indian in the child. And that was the phrase that was used. Let's get rid of the Indian in the child. So that these children were forced to come into schools. They were taken from their villages and their families, forced to go into residential schools, um, and not allowed to use their traditional names, clothing, languages, dress, um, food, anything to do with it, or customs. They had to abandon all that and adopt the so-called dominant Christian societal values and practices of Canadian colonized society. Um, And in the process, they were, again, the most vulnerable children of all. And the same attitudes towards schooling, like um, incredibly bad um, housing conditions, hygiene conditions, um, inappropriate food and clothing, and in our very cold climate in Canada, um, that's not a that's not a joke um, and on top of it all they were then abused in the same way um, sexually physically emotionally they were just abused um, and it, I'm afraid I have to admit that in many ways we've we, we stopped the, the residential school system continued for almost a century in fact the last school only closed in about 1997 that's not long ago 20 30 years ago exactly. um, and since then, it's been a slow process of exposing what happened in the residential schools, which, of course, many apologies eventually, but not a lot of compensation. But it hasn't stopped. In, it's just changed in different ways. Um Another, what has followed on that, and that happened is called the 60s scoop, because it was mainly from about the 1960s onwards, many of the children of indigenous families, because those families were completely broken down, those children learned a different language, with if they eventually went home, they couldn't speak with their parents um they had no they were never educated very well they didn't have good careers they couldn't make good lives for themselves they turned to alcohol there were no jobs available for them um, so they turned to alcoholism, drug abuse it's been a disaster for them. Um, so once the residential schools were closed, the approach became well the children of those families or of those the children of those children now, um, are unable to be good parents. So we'll take their children away. We'll take their babies away at birth, and we'll put them out for fostering, put them out for adoption. And there was a huge racket in, in putting out children for adoption, which, of course, were, was paid by yeah. people who are desperate to adopt children. Um, and those children were simply scooped up and and dispersed amongst not Uh, uh, Inuit or not uh, indigenous peoples, but just to the Western world families. Um, So that has continued for a long time. And I'm afraid that's been followed by some other horrific experiences, which we are beginning to unravel right at the moment, which is um, that some of the mothers are being involuntarily sterilized at the time of giving birth or around then without them knowing what's happening. Um, doing tubal ligations at the time of giving birth so that they are unable to have more children on the grounds that you've had too many children now or you're not a good enough mother or your family situation isn't well enough, so you shouldn't be able to bring up more children. So it's changed. It's not quite as extensive, perhaps, in horror, but even so, it, it's, it's shocking. They're very few. There's about maybe up to 10% of the Canadian population is, is Indigenous. Mm-hmm. It's about 4 or 6% maybe, but in some areas maybe 10%. But most of the children, like 70% of the children in foster care are Indigenous. So we're beginning to see this in a very different way. or well, not beginning. Yes. We are seeing it in a very different way, that this is just another form of what is being called genocide or at very least cultural genocide. But it's been acknowledged that this is really a genocide of of the indigenous population in Canada. Awful. So, yes, that's another section of my book uh, on the residential schools, which is a problem as well.
0: Yes. Um, What about abuse within families and family facilitated abuse? Yes.
1: Yes. the book itself deals with three levels of abuse. Really, the one is the family level, the the individual level of the family in the home. The other is in institutions like the schools, and part of the institutional component is actually the sporting bodies and the Boy Scouts, which we can talk about. But and the third level is the global level, which is even bigger as a problem. But yes, within the family, we have you have, um, and this is what we've been aware of, perhaps in in society. But it's probably the smallest component of child sex abuse is the individual child who is sexually abused in the home, either by the father. Usually, it's usually boys. About over ninety percent of perpetrators of sexual abuse are men, so it's primarily men, but not only. Um, So it could be the father, or it could be a, a stepfather, or it could be a boyfriend of the mother, or a new father of. The, the, a new husband of a mother who's remarried, and so on, um, or it could be an uncle or aunt or friend, but it's usually a man—a man who knows the child—and that kind of sexual abuse involves grooming, which is a huge component of sexual abuse, both in the family and in the global inv- setting. Um, and this is when the the the, the child knows this parent, this, this man. Uh, he's welcomed into the home, so he's not someone to be afraid of. Um, and he becomes close to the child, takes them for sweets, ice creams, um, out alone, earns the trust of the mother, um, and off they go. And he then abuses the child. Um, and of course, if the if she if he, if the child, the girl, or the boy, tells the 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 parent, the mother, she's often indebted to that man or afraid of the man, and she doesn't say anything. She tries to pretend it's not happening. Um, and in a sense, she's a perpetrator as well. She may not be in a position of authority to change situation very much, but she too is a perpetrator by her silence and by her complicit complying with what's going on. Um, so that's an awful thing, and and you know it, the other side of that is is abuse by teachers, you know when the child goes out of the family into the teaching situation. So it, it's a very difficult situation, and of course the child is groomed not to say anything because if you do say anything, um, your mum will, you know, your dad will go to jail, your mother will go to jail, you'll be punished, you you know you're going to be in trouble. Um, so you mustn't say anything or it's our secret. You keep it between yes. us. And I love you so much and right. you're so wonderful and I'll look after you. Um, so the child is not free. Not It's at emotionally all. manipulated to keeping it quiet and it can go on for years and it can be incredibly difficult for those children to ever speak out about it. And there's really, when I mentioned earlier, that child sex abuse is not just a physical abuse or a sexual abuse. It's a betrayal. It's a betrayal of trust. And it's an inability to to work and build relationships with anyone ever again.
0: Yeah, the most fundamental kind of betrayal, isn't it?
1: Exactly.
0: Um, What about things like circumstances like child brides and child prostitution?
1: (laughs) All right, we call it child marriage in most of the time. Um, This is also a global problem. Um, these are children who are married off to so to 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 men, usually much older men, um, and it's societies that that accept this as part of the way things are, and it can it's primarily for economic reasons. The family is poor, and this is one way uh, the child is sold to to the the the, the groom, the man, um, and it's a way of keeping uh, getting some income in. And interestingly enough. Many things have been exacerbated by COVID, COVID, but this is another one. Um, Because of the uh, economic impact that COVID has had and people being unable to go out to work, um, keeping a child in school has become very difficult in these countries. So those children are too expensive to keep at home, and they're sold out to provide some income for the family. Um, But on top of that, there's an attitude that this is okay this is how life is, this is what it should be. Children should be married off very early. For one thing, it protects them. It protects them from being sexually abused by others. She's now got a nice man to look after her. Um, uh, In another, it extends her childbearing years, so Mm -hmm. she can then have more children. Um, And in a way, it's, it's... it's good, and, and the one example I can think of is a, a young, a, a nine-year-old girl, I think, who was sold off to this man, and within she fought against him and whatever. Within three days, she had been killed, and the parents came apologetically to him and said, "We're so sorry. She was not a good wife. We'll offer you her seven-year-old sister in her place." Oh. I mean, these, these stories are, are are just unbelievably horrific. Um, When you hear about them. But child marriages is is very much um, a societally accepted practice in these countries. And it's very hard to change change it at, at, at all. Um, Education is one thing, but again, most of the international education that is taking place by the UN agencies, which directs this, does do a lot to influence and teach children that this is not necessary, it's not appropriate, it's not the the way it's best for you, it's better for you to stay in school, get some education, then you can do something better with your life, get married later, and so on. But again, most of that education appears to be directed towards girls telling them again. It's up to them to solve their problem. They are the ones who need to change the situation. Why are we not teaching this to boys, to men, and saying this is not yes. the way the world
0: should work? What sort of societies are we talking about in terms of child marriage?
1: Um, I'm just trying to, to find some of my, my notes on this Um. There are societies in in different parts of the world. Um, I actually remember working in Kazakhstan at one point and learning that this was a practice there at the time, and it had been for for decades, centuries maybe. Um, And I asked the girls; some of them themselves had been um, married off earlier. And another practice that came with this was abduction of the children. Um, that you could just take a child off the streets and take them home for a few hours and then their reputation is destroyed and they then um, have to marry you. So it's another way of of dealing with child marriage. And those girls who themselves had been abducted said to me, "Um, you know, it's not so bad in the end. You get to love the man. (laughs) I I couldn't believe that in in many ways. Um, But it's, it's usually the countries the highest rates of the countries where child marriage occurs are uh, many in Africa Niger 76% of all marriages are child marriages the central african republic about 68% chad 67% bangladesh Another part of the world, oh my gosh, almost sixty percent, fifty-nine percent. Southern Sudan, again, Africa, fifty-two percent. Latin America and the Caribbean is down about twenty-five percent. The Middle East, about eighteen percent, and Eastern Europe and Central Asia, about eleven percent. So it is pretty widespread, but more often than not in Africa um, and some of Southeast Asia.
0: So this is largely about poverty and patriarchy.
1: Yes, it's patriarchy, it's poverty, and it's also sexual slavery. This is one way in which girls are legally allowed to be employed as sexual slaves. They not only have to cook and clean, they have to be sexually involved. Globally, it's about 21% of all children under 18 and 5% under the age of 15. Under the age of fifteen. Yes. Yeah. Wow. And then there's some religions. Some of these. Some of them. Islam can also be manipulated. Um, it not always like this, but in some cases, Islam can be manipulated into so-called contract marriages. And many of the girls involved are not are not uh, um, able to read or write, so they can't read the contracts. They're just told, "Oh, this man wants to marry you, and you're going to get." so much payment and, you know, new dresses or whatever it is. And you're now married in a religious ceremony, but it's a contract marriage. And at the end of the contract or for three months, two months, whatever it is, the man can just disappear. And he's, he's off the hook. She by then of course has been abused for, for some months or whatever the period of time is. And she has no other alternative, but to go back and enter into another contract marriage. And this is, so-called legitimate under various forms of Islam in various ways. Very difficult situation again.
0: Oh, indeed. Um, there's a part of the book where you talk about the global enabling of all of this.
1: Yes, this. Um, we have two two issues that are really involved in the global level of um, sexual. Abuse of children. Um, one, the, the, a few variations on it, but uh, the commodifi- a small part of it is the commodification of girls. We, yeah. we encourage girls um, in a way to um, become sexually appealing and attractive. Beauty contests, modeling, magazines, adverts, movies where girls are uh, presented as sex objects. And the problem with that is that we we encourage girls to see their self-worth as a sexual being. I mean, all little girls like to put on makeup and brush their hair and put color on their hair, whatever. That's not a problem. But it's when their whole self-concept is entwined in the concept. You are only a good child. You're only an attractive girl or or person if you're beautiful, if you're a a beauty queen and so on. With that kind of... um, involvement of the girl's self-concept as part of a commodity it becomes a, a problem but it's not a small components it's about a hundred thousand girls a year are involved involved in beauty contests and I was blown away <sighs> by that figure as well oh uh, yeah and it's a massive it's a hugely lucrative business the business that goes around the hairdressers and the clothing and the makeup and and the the festivities that go with it, and the competitions, um, the advertising that goes with it, makes it a very lucrative business. So it's not, you know, just a playing a thing no. that you play around with, and the kids can go and have fun on Saturday afternoons with this. This is an industry. It's a okay. major industry. It's big business indeed. Yeah. And um, then the other side of it is the internet on a global level. Now we, we tend to blame the internet. The internet doesn't do anything. It's our use of the internet that is inappropriate. Um, and again, the internet in terms of sex, sex sites, sex websites, um, this is can, this can be actually really helpful for most people, most adults. Um, sexual websites can help people with sexual activity. Um, they can be informative. Um, They can be very, very good things, just like a lot of the internet is incredibly useful and I don't know how we ever lived without it, Um, but it can be abused. And when it's used for uh, child sex stimulation or child sex imaging, it is very inappropriate and very harmful. But it's, it's anonymous, people who use the internet and seek out child sex sites, um, can hide behind the anonymity of, of the internet. Um, and and it's a problem because our most parents are unwilling to talk about sex um, to their children and they're also afraid to talk about the use of sex in the internet. It used to be confined to the dark web. Most of the worst sexual abuse of children used to be on the dark web. Um, and there are... Tens of thousands of websites that involve sexual imagery, literally tens of thousands. Um, And they, especially on the dark web initially, although this is now spreading into the ordinary internet, um, they target three different age groups of children, the websites, the sex websites and sex imagery websites. Um, About 60% are prepubescent infants and toddlers of imagery on those websites. Oh, dear. So it's a huge number that are really, really tiny children, little kids. That's gross. 65% of them are girls. There's some boys as well. But 92% of the perpetrators are men. Um, There are also some groups of children who abuse other children, like children who take sexual uh, images, videos of another boy, um, raping another girl or sexually abusing a touching girl and then sharing it amongst all their friends. So you get child sexting that goes on as well. Um, it's, it's, again, an unbelievably lucrative business. There are websites like Pornhub, in particular, has 100 billion, 100 billion visits each year. So people go on site to look at these things and the figures that we've got at the moment are about 100 billion, anything up to 100 billion visits a year. And those numbers increased exponentially over COVID because people were confined <laughs> to home. Yes. They didn't go to work all day, so they were at home. Um, even if they were supposed to be working from home, they were at home in the privacy of their own homes and able to play on the internet. It's extraordinary. So, yeah, it's it's unbelievably extraordinary. Um And sometimes it gets exposed, um, but it's on almost all the websites um, you can think of. Um, Telegram, Discord, um, Facebook, Snapchat, Twitter, well, X now, I suppose, Um, OnlyFans, Instagram, TikTok, WhatsApp, you name it, you'll find these websites. It's spreading from the dark web onto the ordinary web now. and it's becoming very very difficult to control there are also attempts by some people to to deceive children they'll go on site for example I remember one story of a person who went on internet sites connected with children and pretended to be Justin to be an agent for Justin Bieber and he'd say if you send me a picture um, you could you can enter a competition and maybe you'll get five minutes conversation with Justin Bieber and then the next time he'd send a, a text or something to say, send me a picture of you with no clothes on or of your vagina. And then he'd send another text to say, um, don't worry, all the girls are doing it and it'll be our secret. Ah, yes. And then and the next one would be, that. send it now. And then he would sell those images all over the place. Um, you know, they would be posted and people could pay to to yeah. to view them. Um, So these kinds of unbelievable, horrible deceptions are are taking place as well. Um, There are tens of thousands of websites that involve child sex images.
0: The numbers are extraordinary.
1: Absolutely. I just
0: can't wrap my brain around the scale of all of this.
1: And, And that's what stunned me when I began to work in this area. I thought I have to put it together because I couldn't find a single book that integrated all the issues I could think of and could come across around child sex abuse. There were specific books like someone, the the, uh, the church abuse and all that, someone uh, and a lot of memoirs about children who had been sexually abused by their parents or sex slaves, um, individuals who tell their stories of sexual abuse. Um, but there were no books that looked at this whole image, this whole picture, and put the issue of child sex abuse into a single place. And that's what stimulated me to do it. But also, sex trafficking is another major part of it um, that we haven't even started. We don't even know how to begin to control this. Um, It's as big, again, lucrative. I keep saying it, which is why the subtitle of the book is Power, Profit, and Perversion. the The um sex trafficking trade is as big, if not bigger, than the drugs trade and the arms trade. Oh You're my talking goodness. mega billions
0: Absolutely. when it comes to
1: to this, um, it's about seventy about almost eighty percent of all human trafficking is involved It is involves sex trade. The other part of it is is, is uh, human trafficking for labor for forced labor and then other part of that is for you know uh, child for marriage or sex slavery or for organ trafficking which is the other part but the biggest part of all about 80 percent of it is sex trafficking
0: so um, how how do we develop uh, a climate that acknowledges this abuse supports the victims um, begins to say, on a global level, a national level, a local level, that this is not acceptable.
1: <laughs> I wish I knew the answer to that. I can only say that the only conclusion I could come to to how do we resolve any of this and all of this is you need a you need multi a multifaceted um, approach. It affects almost every part of our society. So you've got to involve every part of our society. And the first step in that is is really awareness. Um, We don't know. We have not yet brought this to enormous public awareness. The child school sex uh, thing has reached public awareness. The residential schools have reached awareness to to a large extent. there's scepticism about how far it's gone in terms of sex abuse on the internet and especially sex abuse in trafficking. I don't believe that those uh, the extent of that has reached global awareness. We have to influence politicians to have the will to change this. We have to influence the policing society, the law society as to how to deal with this. Half the police or some of the police are possibly involved or collaborate oh. with it. If they catch girls who've run away, managed to escape, they take them back to the perpetrators because they get a payback. Um, the medical profession, we have to figure out how to care for children who have been abused, maybe how to develop ways of prohibiting sex abuse by, by um um, pedophiles, but that's a very, very difficult process and nobody's come up with any solution that really works for any length of time. Um, it inf- usually involves the perpetrator having to comply with some medical treatment and it uses, causes so many side effects that they don't stick with it, um, like turning them off all sex, not just sex with children. So, it's, it's a problem um, at, at every level. We have to teach teachers. We have to teach um, parents. Um, we have to get into every level of society, the, the, the schools, the, um, the various cultural groups that actually condone it. That the, 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 like in countries where, where uh, there's a, a, a culture of child sex abuse. For example, in India, we have a massive problem where sex abuse seems to be um, part of the norm and part of the culture. Um, and how do you influence whole cu- whole countries like that? Um, other I- I- situations, for example, HIV AIDS. There's been in many countries where this is prevalent. The image goes around that if you have sex with a, with a, a, a virgin or yeah. with a young girl, you can clear yourself of HIV AIDS and that leads to rape of children, toddlers, babies. Um, so you have to get education and awareness at every level of society. And we have to overcome our horror and terror of talking about sex and especially talking about sex to children. And then we say we should introduce child sex abuse programs in or child sex programs or sex programs, sex education programs in school, um, and then you say, who's going to teach them? How do we know that the teachers are able to discuss this issue? And I mean, we've seen what's happening in in some of the more restrictive approaches to schooling in in America at the moment, for example. Um, what about uh, the attitudes to abortion in America at the moment and in many countries where abortion is banned? And these children who are sexually abused get pregnant and they have abortions too. So what do you want? Do you expect them to carry 10-year-olds, to carry their babies to term? And, and it's just abusing them again and again and again. So I, I, it, it, it's every single level of society has to be addressed to focus on this. And I believe it must start right at the top. Uh, we need the political will to do something about this. And at the moment, I don't think we've got that in any country in the world. The UN agencies are doing a lot and they're doing as much as they can. I think a lot of their programs focus on the girl instead of on the perpetrator. So again, um, we have to start from awareness, education, exposure, um, and t- target it from the top all the way down to the individual family, to parents, to child preparation for marriage, for their futures as well. It's an overwhelmingly challenging, difficult problem. And one of the things is, you know, start with a book like mine and and tell people about it, you know, get it out. Um, But that is a huge challenge in itself.
0: Indeed it is. Um, It makes people terribly uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I think the idea of changing the conversation away from, girls, bearing that responsibility to young men or society at large is difficult.
1: It's difficult, and it really is a major step that has to be taken. It's not girls who are going to prevent this. It's men who are going to prevent this, and we have to target them.
0: And that takes us back to the issue of the patriarchy, doesn't it? Yes. (laughs) Well, I'm afraid so. Oh, indeed. Well, I think I've taken enough of your time. Thank you so much for a wonderful interview on an incredible book, Beverly. I really appreciate that. Um, before I let you go, what are you working
1: on now? Uh-huh. Okay, that's. Um, I'm going back to my some of my other subjects. Um, I'm working on two books at the moment, Again, my world has been focused on dealing with um, reproduction in many ways and on the Holocaust as one example of situations where women gave birth in difficult situations. So I have two books, one on reproduction and one on the Holocaust that are, I'm working on. The one on the Holocaust is looking at a, a more positive side. My children have been encouraging me for years to stop writing horror stories and <laughs> to stop <laughs> writing things about happier subjects. Um so the one book I'm looking at is the role of women, who Jewish women, who rescued other Jewish children, large numbers of Jewish children um, during the Holocaust. I mean, remember this is an incredibly difficult situation because Jewish women themselves were targets, um, the particular targets of, of the Nazis, um, and and for them to try and think of saving other children, but especially hundreds of children in most cases, was overwhelmingly challenging, and there were remarkable women who did this. So far, I've come of over 100 women that I've come across who managed to save large numbers of Jewish children, so I'm putting that together as a book. And the other book I'm dealing with, which will take a little longer to finalize, is a book on um, obstetric abuse. The abuse of women during their process of um, having a baby. So those are the two, and hopefully they'll come out in the next couple of years.
0: Well, those sound fascinating. Thank you so much. Uh, Again, Beverly, thank you so much for your time. This is such an interesting and important conversation, and I really appreciate your taking the time. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Jeanette, for having me and for interviewing me. It's lovely.